not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. everyone and welcome to the bubble hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery i'm jean mccarthy recovery author blogger and podcast host i've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago on my blog unpickled and in the books that i write two of them so far and more on the way at my website i tell my stories there and i hold space for your stories here And today, I'm holding space for another podcast host in recovery, Lori Massacott. Lori is also a coach for women who want to make big midlife changes, and she talks about the beauty of life after alcohol on her podcast, To 50 and Beyond. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, I'm glad you're here, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. There's a very good chance we have some overlap in our audience members, so it'll be fun for them to hear both sides of this conversation, because recently I got to be interviewed by you on your podcast telling my story. Now it's my turn (laughs) to hold space for you. (laughs) Yes, I love spending time with you. I appreciate everything that you do here. I, I honestly do, and I know that I told you while I was interviewing you on my podcast I've heard from so many people that get so much support and help from your podcast and your blog. So thank you. Oh, it's my honor. It, it's a privilege. And the beauty of this, this show is the guests. I mean, it would be boring if it was me week after week. I'd run out of things to say. So it is all <laughs> about the guests and their stories. And today that includes you. So Lori, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Thank you. Uh, I know my story is very relatable. I started talking openly about my drinking in 2015 after creating an anonymous Instagram account called 250 and Beyond at two years sober. And since then, I've received so many emails and messages saying, I'm just like you. I started out drinking at 14 with Coors Light and Pink Champagne and Bartles and James And I ended at 45 with a couple of bottles of wine in one setting, plus champagne and whatever else was available. And I think back to when I first started drinking, it was at a high school party. And I am what they call a shy person. I get nervous very easily back then, especially, but still today. I used to think that being nervous and shy was such a bad thing. I wanted to hide it. And from a very early age, I remember being teased about being shy. And because I would break out in hives all over my neck, whenever I got embarrassed, I would blush very easily. And I told myself that I was different and there was something wrong with me. I wasn't like them. And I held on to that narrative for decades. My focus was always, what do they think of me? And the hives and being labeled shy are a big part of why I started drinking. Those hives have plagued me for years. And I always spent so much time trying to find somebody else who had the same thing happening with their body. And I never did, especially when I was younger. 
I grew up in Long Beach, California. I was born in 1967, November 11th, 1967. And I had a mom and dad who worked hard and were really great parents. And I remember my dad drinking Budweiser while watching the Rams games. And I remember being allowed to take sips and I absolutely hated it. I thought it was so disgusting. And I have a sister who is four years older than me and started drinking about the same time I did. And when I was 11 and my sister was 15, my mom was 41, my dad passed away. And I was daddy's girl. I played flag football on an all-girls team. When I was in the fifth or sixth grade, he would love cheering for me. Uh, we played football together. I loved dancing with my dad and doing yard work. I was very, very close to him. And I was crushed when he passed away, very unexpectedly. And the last memory I have of him is him and my mom fighting. I don't remember them fighting before this night. I think there was arguing. My dad was somebody who had a lot of stress and anxiety, and he was in his late 40s when he passed. Um, so I think that's where I inherited it from. And I remember him spending a lot of time being down, I would say, but at 11 and even younger, I really wasn't sure what that was all about. It gets me emotional talking about it. So this night we were dying Easter eggs and I just remember it starting to get kind of not physical, but there was like a push maybe or something happened and I threw an egg at him and it hit the wall and it splattered down. And after that, my mom took us, we went and stayed with my aunt and he left to stay with his brother in Oregon, and he passed away there. And we came home <laughs> the next day after he left, and that egg was on the wall. And I thought, oh, <laughs> boy. And he hadn't passed by then, um, but that was the last memory I have of my dad and me. And it wasn't at all what our relationship was. And so after he passed, I was just absolutely crushed. I used food for comfort. I gained a lot of weight going into junior high school, which is such a vulnerable age anyway. I was teased by boys and I just turned to food. And in junior high is when I became aware of the hives and the hives came up all of the time. Somebody mentioned one of my teachers, you have to do an oral report. I thought, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to call in, you know, sick. I'm going to tell my mom I'm sick. I missed a lot of school back then. I was just a very, very nervous kid. And even my friends would tease me about my red blotchy neck. And I felt like that moment, you know, all of those moments that I had even earlier on that there's something really wrong with me. I'm not like everybody else. And I was constantly trying to find that person that had the same thing happening to them. And I never could. So I thought, man, I'm weird. I'm really, really weird. So I spent junior high really struggling. I, I've always had great friends. I have the same friends now that I grew up with when I was very, very young, but I was really struggling and I was always trying to be somebody I wasn't. And so going into high school, I spent the entire summer at home eating a very low calorie diet of tuna and drinking tab and exercising to Jane Fonda and Richard Simmons, who's my favorite, so I could lose weight before I got into high school. And I did. And I got into high school. 
and it didn't last very long, but we had off-campus sororities. So kind of like a college sorority and all the popular kids were in it and we had to rush these clubs and I rushed and I was very nervous, you know, thinking that all my friends that I went to junior high with were going to get in this club and I wasn't and I wanted to be in it so bad and the rushing and being around these kids in the club is where I remember getting that first taste of alcohol. And I thought, well, this is going to give me a little liquid courage. I made the club and flash forward to that party I was at in 1982. It was because of this club. And I had my first bottle of pink champagne, which I split with a friend. And I remember walking out into the room thinking, hmm, there's all these kids there. Boys were there. And I felt really confident or I just felt like I had never experienced this feeling before, that was my solution. I didn't break out in hives when I was drunk. I was very loose. And I held on to that solution until I turned 45. I focused on parties versus school. And after I graduated high school, my mom started doing things with her friends and she started drinking and taking long weekend trips to Palm Springs. And my house became the party house. And my mom didn't start drinking until her 40s after my dad passed away. And there were kegs and pot and lots of kids drinking and having a blast. And I always was able to drink at home because my mom thought, you know, back then my mom was thinking, well, if you're going to drink, I'd rather you drink at home because there was one time where she came out and found empty beer cans in my car and I was driving around with my friends and she was devastated but she never talked to me about my drinking and and not saying anything against her because she was such a great mom. Um, But nobody ever mentioned anything to me about my drinking. As I started to get into my 20s, again, I wasn't focusing on school. I attended a community college for maybe a semester or two, and I went and worked full-time in the real estate industry. And it was in a job here in Southern California called an escrow officer. And it's a very stressful job. And I got into it very young. And I continued in that work for 20 years. And I was always stressed at that job. I was always stressed. And I realized that if I was going to be able to work and make money, then I was going to have to continue drinking and I was going to have to cover up these hives. And I started making really great money in my 20s. I was living in an area in Long Beach, California called Belmont Shore, right by the ocean, right by bars and restaurants. And I felt like a grown up. Like I could handle going out drinking until 2 or 3 a.m. and going to work by 8, completely buzzed. I prided myself on the rally. And I'm a drinker. I can drink so much and still function. I was a party girl. That's what everybody expected of me. That's what I expected of myself. And I was drunk a lot in my 20s. I I was drunk and I also had a lot of fun in my 20s. I, I don't regret a lot of that, but I look back now and think, why didn't I realize it? I'm so inspired by other 20 year olds who are getting sober now. Why didn't I realize back then how many rock bottoms there were? And I think about that a lot. The fact that I never realized my drinking was more than just being a party girl. And around 1997, While I was in this job, in this office, I just was so out of alignment with what kind of work I should be doing. 
I had my first panic attack. Out of the blue, I was working. I felt like I had blacked out for an hour, but in reality, it was about two minutes of that fight or flight. And I was so embarrassed. I was frozen. I grew extremely red all over my neck and felt that I couldn't catch my breath. And my coworkers gathered around me. My boss made someone go and get orange juice for me and said, you're having a panic attack. After that, the expectation of having a panic attack took over my life. I started wearing turtlenecks to cover up my neck every single day for at least a decade, even in 100 degree weather. And I spent a lot of time in that fight or flight mode, constantly waiting for that next panic attack to happen. And in 1997, I met my husband in a bar. Our first date, I was drunk before he ever picked me up, as I was before all social events in my life. I was an expert in the pre-party game, and we did a lot of drinking together and with our friends and my family. My family drank together. We had long days of brunch and spending time, and there was always alcohol involved at everything. My husband and I got married in 1999 in Santa Barbara, California. It was Memorial Day weekend. And I was drunk for the better part of the weekend. I was drunk before I left my hotel. I didn't want anybody to be in the hotel with me getting ready, which was just one of my biggest regrets because my mom was there and I just didn't want anybody there. I wanted to drink and get ready all by myself. And it was one of the most enjoyable weekends and times of my life. There are so many missing pieces that I think about it a lot. I was just looking at one of our wedding pictures this morning. And I just think about that a lot now, now that I know what it's like to live without alcohol. That is one of the events that I would have loved to go back. Of course, we can't and redo it unless we renew our vows, but I don't see that happening. I really missed out on a lot while I was drinking. And for two years after we married, we continued to work hard and party hard. And in 2000, we decided to try for a baby. I timed my pregnancy so I could wear turtlenecks during the winter because there were so many things I knew were coming up. I had to cover my hives. I was very strategic with how I hid who I was. And my son was born in May of 2001. And I remember thinking when I was pregnant, even though I had some champagne at my baby shower, I begged my mom because I was so nervous, I cannot be a mom and drink. I was terrified of being responsible for someone else, and I had him the day before Mother's Day and came home on Mother's Day to champagne and cake, and as soon as the bottle popped, I was right back to it. I drank at every holiday, birthday party for my son up until he was 12 when I quit. It is not so much a regret for me anymore. I'm just so grateful that I quit drinking when he was 12. It's a constant pondering, though, of what life would have looked like if I didn't drink when he was little, because there are so many missing pieces there as well. And as I got into my late 30s in 2004, we bought a house to be close to my mom, moved about an hour from our hometown, and I commuted to that office where I had that first panic attack. I worked there 13 years and hated the last 10 of it. The commute was three hours a day round trip. I would get up at 4 a.m. so I could be in the office by 7 and work until 3.30, which put me at home at 5. And I spent my weekends drinking myself into blackouts and episodes of anger and panic 
mostly because of the job, but money and stress and just unhappiness with myself. And that job was so stressful. I was making so many mistakes. I was so burnt out, but I thought this is what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life. And after we bought our home, the recession started to happen. I was no longer making the money I was making before 2004. And I was terrified of losing my job and our home. And in 2007, I had had it with a commute and found a job in the same industry, but closer to my home. And in six months, I was laid off and without anyone hiring because of the market at that time. I had no income for the first time in my life. And my first memory driving home from being laid off was I was not going to be able to afford my wine and would have to start drinking the cheap stuff. And one of my top fears was losing my job. I had always kept a job, no matter how much drinking I did. I was very, I was very functional, uh, but I was in constant fear especially at this job that I would be let go. And I decided to do something drastic after that, uh, losing my job because there were no other jobs in the industry. I started my own house cleaning business. I absolutely fell in love with going out and cleaning houses and organizing and building my own business for myself. I cashed out a stock option that allowed us to have some extra cash. I was constantly worrying about money And my solution was to drink over it. I was drinking even more while I was building this business. And I had that cleaning business for 10 years. And in February of 2009, my mom was diagnosed with stage four uterine cancer and passed away on December 7th of that same year. (laughs) I cannot say that out loud without crying. Another top number one fear from age 11 on up was my mom dying. And now it was happening. And my mom and I were very close. I was very dependent on her and she was my fixer. And after she died, I was lost. Who would take care of me now at 42? I wasn't working much and I was in a state of panic most days. And while I was in the oncology office with my mom and my eight-year-old son trying to hold her up, my husband called and said he had lost his job. After that, my drinking just took on another level. Looking back now, 2009 became the year I started to hate drinking, but I was drinking more than ever. After my mom passed, I spent 2010 in a fog, just going through the emotions. I had this business I was building. I wasn't grieving. I was getting through it by staying busy. Worrying took up a lot of my time and drinking whenever I had the chance. And 2010 was also the year I started to notice my periods were starting to change. I was always 28-day cycle to the T, and they were becoming longer. My moods were all over the place, and I've never been a great sleeper, but my sleeping was non-existent. I was up for hours every single night, and I felt like I was a ticking time bomb. And from 2010 to 2013, I realized by doing a lot of Googling about what was going on with my body that I may be in perimenopause. And I was absolutely shocked. I hadn't been to the doctor since my son was born because I didn't want to go to the doctor. I didn't want to see my weight. I didn't want them to ask me any questions about my lifestyle. I wanted to hide and never see a doctor again. And I was really freaked out. I was really, really scared during this time. And in 2011-ish, I started to question my drinking after one of my cousin's kids said to me in a bar, you know that our family are alcoholics. 
And I was so defensive about it saying, I don't drink every day and on and on with all the things that I thought alcoholism was. I wasn't an alcoholic. And after that, I became obsessive about Googling, am I an alcoholic? I took the quizzes and I lied on the quizzes and then I would retake all the online quizzes. And I started to worry for the first time in my life about my drinking and my perimenopause and my concerns about my drinking brought me to start a journal in May of 2013. Through the pages of this journal, my true thoughts about my drinking were revealed. I was questioning what was I doing? Why was I drinking so much? Why was I blacking out and throwing up? I prided myself on being the gal who could party and rally, but I could barely function. My body ached. My hangovers lasted two to three days. I had severe headaches and my panic had turned into paranoia. I had to see a cardiologist for a month because of heart palpitations and I drank the night before every appointment. I was an emotional and physical wreck and I was breaking down through the pages of this journal. I started bargaining with myself on paper, only drink on Saturday night, only drink red wine, don't have more than two bottles available at home, and tell Bill, my sweet husband, not to buy it for me no matter what. And I broke all of those rules and disappointed myself over and over again that I was so sick of myself. I was so mean to myself. I truly loathed who I was. And on August 11th, 2013, I took my last drink. And there were no rock bottoms on that night. I was home by myself watching a Lifetime movie with two bottles of Chardonnay in the fridge. And I heard a voice saying, you've had enough for two lifetimes, you're done. And I poured the wine down the sink and told myself that I will never drink again. And I was sobbing and scared because I had never stuck to any commitment to myself ever. I didn't believe myself, but I knew that I had to try and I didn't want to go to AA. That was the only option that I knew of. And I thought, well, I'll do it on my own. I had so much shame. I could never imagine talking about this openly with anybody. And I talked to my husband and I told him that uh, I'm going to quit drinking. And he said, I'll quit too. And it is because of him and going to the gym and my trusty journal that I am here today, seven and a half years sober. And I would not be here without the support from my husband and my son, Spencer. My husband is one of the most patient people I've ever met. And he always has my back. And neither one of us knew what a different sobriety would make in our relationship. And as parents, we just didn't know. We just didn't know. Lori, thank you for being willing to go deep into your vulnerability. But I know it's hard to talk about that grief. Oh, it is hard. Yeah, I can hear what it's costing you. And I know that your willingness to go there is because you know the power of, of sharing on such a deep level. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for your honesty. Oh, thank you, Jean. Let's start where you ended up, quitting together with your husband. I had a lot of resistance. I had people who said, oh, I won't drink with you. Or, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I'll not drink if you're not drinking. I wanted to do this myself. I felt a little protective of someone else quitting. And I'm not sure if that was me wanting to be special or wanting to be secretive or what, but was there a part of you that pushed back against it or did you welcome his participation in your recovery? Oh, I welcomed it, but neither one of us in hindsight really thought it was going to work. 
you know, I mean, it's great. Like when you say, I'm just not going to drink again, that was my plan. But then there was also part of me that was like, yes, that's never going to work. You know, I, I fought that for a long time. I had resistance within myself. And then also, you know, there was the, a lot of trust, not having trust <laughs> in him because he was easily persuaded by me. I mean, I could just tell him to go buy me a bottle of wine and he would do it. And for both of us working together, I mean, it built up our trust within our relationship even stronger. But man, it was it was tough. I welcomed it because I felt, and I, I don't think, I don't know if I would have been able to do it if he was still drinking at that time. And I did not expect him to say, you know what? I don't need to drink either. And that's exactly what he said. I don't need to drink either. And I thought, really? We met in a bar. That's what we do together. We party. Like, how is this going to work? He hasn't. I mean, he'll drink socially now if he goes out with his friends. It's it's interesting because I, I ask him now about it. You know, how do you feel about it? Because I'm the one that's talking openly about my drinking. I don't think he misses it, but I don't know. So it sounds like your husband is a non-drinker. Mm-hmm. For the most part. But you are sober. So is that, exactly. <laughs> is that how you define yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Talk about that. Talk about that. And, and tell me if there's times where you want to push him into the recovery realm or if, if it's lifestyle choice and that's it. Yeah, that's a good question. He is somebody who was my designated driver. A lot of the time he could go and just have one or two drinks. You know, I would never have been able to do that. I wasn't anybody's designated driver until after I quit drinking for, you know, 30 years. I never was the designated driver and he was. So I saw that there, he's a big guy though. You know, he's 6'4", 250 pounds. He's a big guy. I tried to keep up with him and he could just have one or two. Did he know you were struggling? Could he see it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, mm. um, yeah. You know, everything really started picking up in my late 30s. And then, of course, losing my mom. I wasn't grieving. I, I hadn't grieved for her. I was just trying to h- cover everything up and just, like I said, go through the motions. And so I started really being mean and nasty. I would drink and end up on the bathroom floor crying and screaming and you know, I was a mess. And even though that was going on, he did say to me a few times, I don't think you need to quit drinking. Can you moderate? And I had no interest in moderating my drinking. I drank to get drunk. That was my goal. And so after it, about 90 days in, he's like, wow, it's a huge difference. And I just feel like when we're in that drinking cycle, for so long, when you come out of it, that's when you get that clarity and you just say, oh, wow, I didn't even realize how much and how bad it had gotten. What happened to your grief and the ability to process your grief once you quit drinking? Did that kick in full force? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I cannot talk about my mom because I, I do talk about her on the podcast a lot. I You know, I try to keep their memory alive. You know, I believe in that, but I cannot talk about her without getting emotional. And I think it's because I didn't grieve for so long. And then of course, when we stopped drinking, we're met with all of our emotions and feelings. And it just came like a floodgate. It just came roaring in. And I was so pissed and so alone. And she really was that person in my life. I mean, I turned to her for everything. I don't even know if I felt like an adult at that stage of life. Like 
it's it's been a process for me. I mean, she's going to be gone, well, 12 years this year. So it's something that is on my mind every single day. I talk to her every single day. I write about her in my journal. Uh, I think that the grieving process, there's no time limit on that. Oh, absolutely. It's open-ended. Something else that's interesting is that our relationship with our loved ones doesn't end after they're gone. You continue to have those conversations in your head or in your heart with the person that you've lost. Your understanding of them can mature along with you. Do you find that the, the strengths that you took from your mom, the comfort that you took in your mom is starting to manifest within you now? Are you starting to embody the characteristics of her that you needed within yourself? Totally. Every day I think I am becoming Carol Jean. (laughs) I am. I am becoming her. And that's that's such a compliment. She was a really strong lady. Mm. She went through a lot in her life. And, you know, she passed at 72 and one of the last things that she said um, before she went home with hospice and the doctor said, you know, there's nothing else we can do. She said, I have had a really good life. I've had a really good life. And I thought, that's what I want. Because none of us know mm. how long we have here. I want a, I want a really good life on my terms because, you know, it's my good life. <laughs> I, I definitely am a lot like my mom. We use alcohol to self-medicate or numb the things that are very painful or awkward or that we don't want to feel. But then, unfortunately, it also numbs our ability to feel the good stuff. As a sensitive person, I'm getting from you as you tell your story that you're very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your capacity to feel joy and how that has changed for you in recovery? Oh, wow. I find joy in in so many little things. Uh, I always thought it was the big stuff. You know, I got to wait until I have all of the things, right, to have happiness. And I have to wait for my life to be perfect. And I find so much joy in the imperfection and and being vulnerable like this and being able to talk to other people. Because when I podcast, it's just talking to one person. I'm I'm talking to one person today because I know that my story is going to resonate with somebody and it's going to help. I find a lot of joy there. I am very sensitive, empathetic. I take on a lot and I am just recently working on better boundaries for myself that help me kind of unplug. And I'm very unapologetic about it, just stepping away and having time for myself to write or doodle or whatever I want to do. But I just find, Jean, that there's so much more joy in just the simplicity of life. And I, I really strive to live a simplistic life. You said early on in your share that you used to think that it was bad to be shy and to be sensitive. So I take that to mean you don't see it that way anymore now. Absolutely not. Do you see some of these vulnerabilities as a strength that can be harnessed or a gift or an intrinsic part of who you are? How do you see that now? I just accept myself as is. And I know that I'm not the only one that struggles with that because, you know, especially when you hear friends, even when I was, you know, in my 20s and on up, like, oh, you're so shy. You're so shy. And I used to think, you know, what was I doing that, that they would have to say that? I'm quiet. I'm reserved. If I'm not drunk, I'm not walking in the room saying, hey, here I am. And so after I quit drinking, kind of connecting back to that little girl, letting her know that 
we're okay. And it's such a wonderful trait to be shy and quiet and empathetic. I don't remember your question now. I kind of went off on a little tangent. Did I answer it? <laughs> your, tangent, your tangent was the answer. <laughs> I heard someone say once that when you're a person who blushes, everyone else gets to have their emotions internally. But for someone who has a blushing yeah. response, they wear their emotions on the outside where everyone can see them. What they are made to feel like mm-hmm. is they need to learn to control that or stop it, but it can't be stopped. I mean, I don't blush mm-hmm. so much, but I cannot control my face mm-hmm. or my eyes. They, they'll just like flash with almost fear sometimes when there's no fear needed. But then it snowballs, right? Because then you're responding to your own response. And what do you do now? Do you still feel like you have those external responses? And do you let them go and, and go with them? And what does that feel like now? Such a great question. I don't. I don't have that anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. Since I quit drinking, my life has changed a lot. I, I'm still the same person. I'm, I'm still shy. I guess I'm an introvert. I also can be extroverted if I want to, if I'm in the mood. But I don't have that. Maybe if I go to the doctor or something that just makes me nervous, maybe it'll be a little bit red. I don't care anymore. I'll tell you that. I can't even put into words how I felt every time that burning would start. I felt like I would black out, especially after that first panic attack. Because I thought, mm. oh, here we go. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to think. And when I had that first panic attack, the people that were gathered around my desk, I wasn't doing anything that day. I was working. And all of a sudden, I worked myself up for some reason. And everybody gathered around me. And that was that feeling of, I don't want to be the center of attention. Like I can podcast, I can talk on video. I can do all of those things that I didn't used to do if without drinking. I could do that now. So I'm building up confidence in myself, but I still get nervous. It just externally, it doesn't come out. I mean, I'm nervous today. I'm, you know, it's just that it's okay. It's okay to be nervous. Now I just say it's, I'm alive. I'm alive. So it's really good to feel these things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I say to anybody who's listening, because I've come across other people now (laughs) in my, my search in my adult life where I, I hear about the blushing. It's a real thing. And it makes me so sad because it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, we feel like we are less than, and we're not. So don't hide it. Don't hide it. Cause the, the hiding, it makes it so much worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that, um, speaking my emotions helps to dispel the shame around them. So I had a lot of shame around anxiety. So you mentioned having a stressful job and being stressed out all the time. I was stressed out all the time too when I was in active, not just active alcohol use disorder, but also just like active dysfunction, which was like permeated my life during that phase. Yeah. I, I remember hearing someone I knew was on medication for anxiety and I rolled my eyes, you know, and thought, oh brother, like she should be able to handle that. Well, the fact was I had tons of anxiety, Mm -hmm. but I was just calling it stress because to me, anxiety was shameful, but stress was admirable. Stress was for strong people. You know, anxiety was for weak people. And part of my recovery has been accepting. I have not just a little anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety. It's very much 
who I am and how I'm wired. And my job is to learn to manage it, understand what it's telling me and teach myself better ways to use that information. And so I do find, especially in social settings, instead of trying to hide my anxiety, which just then makes me seem kind of jumpy and Mm -hmm. uh, overreactive to say, whoa, I don't know why, but I'm feeling a lot of anxiety over this. As soon as I say that, I'm starting to take my power back over it. And I'm also taking charge of the social aspect of it, the exchange that I'm having with that person, which was bound to be awkward as long as I'm trying to cover up and function within anxiety. I love that you are owning the narrative and, and taking back the power over it. The perspective over it is one thing, and then the power over it is another. Yeah. It's hard to take yourself out of that. It, it's hard. And it's something that I've learned to do. And I, again, I say, you know, it just means that I'm alive. I'm here and I'm safe is one of my favorite mantras. I am safe. I am, I am okay. And even if I did break out in hives, it's just, it's who I am. I can't hide it. I can't wear turtlenecks again. I had turtlenecks for sleeveless turtleneck. I had the mock turtleneck. I had turtlenecks. That's what I wore. And I'm not kidding that I wore it every single day to work. Different ones, of course, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's a classic look. I mean, it's a classic, classic look. look. (laughs) I just wore, yeah, I just wore one not too long ago, a black turtleneck, and I had it on because it was, you know, winter. And I thought, oh, it's so uncomfortable. I can't believe I wore these things every single day. But I was, that's the the extent of the hiding and the extent of having Mm -hmm. so much shame around just being human, you know, just being human. How do you feel at podcasting? helps your recovery? Oh, wow. It's helped me so much just meeting so many people and hearing their stories and being able to share it with women. Because I, I talk specifically to women over 40 in this stage of life. I think it's an essential time to take a look at drinking. Like I mentioned, the perimenopause, it's an essential time to take a look at drinking. I feel like when I started podcasting uh, over three years ago, I did it on my phone, in my closet. I wasn't going to tell anybody about it. I really just wanted to get this message out. I wanted to start talking about, of course, the effects of alcohol and aging and menopause and how we feel about our bodies and our changing face and and all of those things. I had such a mission inside of me, like the shy person I am. I didn't tell anybody. I just kind of rolled it out and I noticed people were listening to it like, huh, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to interview anybody because that's going to be way too much. I will not be able to do that. I absolutely love interviewing because that's where I meet everybody. And so I I think in my recovery, it's, gosh, totally built up my confidence in myself. It's something that I'm very consistent with. And that's something that plays a big role in my recovery is consistency and showing up when I say I'm going to show up no matter what. I, I absolutely love it. I, it's an honor to to have people on the podcast and be able to share it with the listeners. I, I love it. You mentioned perimenopause and the effects of alcohol. Now, you and I, are, we're not medical experts, but anecdotally, yeah. we hear a lot about how quitting drinking in, in 40s and 50s, even 30s, it's so helpful because hormone regulation is much 
much more effective in the absence of alcohol. I also want to put a plug in for the concept of manopause because guys, if you're listening, your aging through your 40s and 50s will also go much better without alcohol. Men go through hormonal changes at this age too. They do much better without alcohol. So just for the benefits of that alone, it's great. Can you talk a, a little more then about how that part of your life went when you took alcohol out of the equation? Oh, yes. I love to talk about this. Um, I quit at 45. So I was about, I, I started noticing my cycles and everything were off probably right after my mom passed away unfortunately. And, but then in hindsight, I realized, no, they were kind of starting to get a little wonky, especially my moods around late thirties, early forties. And so for the two, two ish years uh, before I quit drinking, I was in a fight with my body. Like I said, my sleep was non-existent. I was gosh, maybe uh, 40 pounds heavier than I am now. Uh, I wasn't exercising. I wasn't taking care of myself. I had a lot of anxiety back then, especially, you know, when you don't sleep, you're not eating well, you're drinking too much, and you are walking around, like I said, like a ticking time bomb after I quit drinking. And I documented all of this in that journal I started in May of 2013. I mean, I wrote letters to myself. I love going back and reading it because I was struggling. It was, and everybody's perimenopause is different. Like Jean said, this is not medical. <laughs> statistics. For me, I was a nervous wreck all the time. And when I quit drinking, it started to slowly dissipate, not the anxiety so much, but how I coped with it and how I dealt with it. And I think about one year into my sobriety, I thought, huh, this is interesting. I've been trying to deal with this anxiety my entire life by hiding it and covering it up and drinking over it. And now I'm not drinking I'm starting to feel so much better. And so my perimenopause, I think I, oh gosh, I went into postmenopause before my 50th birthday, I think. I, uh, yeah, maybe 48, 40. So I had about three years, three years after I quit drinking of still going through everything that I had. You know, you go eight months without a cycle and then boom, it start back up again. I'm like, oh my goodness. I did that for a couple of years. And I ultimately felt so much better as opposed to when I was drinking in perimenopause. For our mom's generation that, you know, we, you mentioned drinking tab and <laughs> I remember a certain diet candy that was called AIDS, A-I-D-S or something. I don't know if you had those, but those were always in my mom's um, pantry as well. You know, life after 40 was, so, you know, women were sort of thought to dry up and become unimportant after 40. I mean, I feel like that was the cultural message during that era. Now, this is just such a celebrated time of life. You know, our moms really paved the path for us of saying like, no, we reject that. Every generation takes it a little bit farther and farther, but I love this stage of life. I am also in full menopause and I just love it. It's just so freeing and I feel so good. And I think about all those years where I felt terrible, it's hard to pull out how much of that is nighttime alcohol withdrawal and how much of it is hormonal, right? You wake up sweating in the night. Is that a, a hot flash or is that withdrawal? Uh, well, we're going to call it a hot flash. Well, that's really important too. And I know that you talked about that on my podcast uh, to differentiate the two. 
you really need to take a look at that drinking and, and maybe take mm-hmm. a break from it. You know, I'm not going to tell anybody to quit if that's what they, if they don't want to quit. For me, my personal experience, I would never have been able to separate those two things if I was still drinking. Cause you're right. It's, am I not sleeping because I was drinking or am I not sleeping because of my hormones going mm-hmm. all over the place, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And we, of course we want it. If, if we're really defensive about our drinking, we want it to be anything but the drinking. So. anything, anything but the drinking. You mentioned as you were prepping for this show that, that writing out your story for the sharing portion of the show was the first time that you had gone through that exercise. So talk about how that felt and what came up for you as you were doing that. I I mean, I write about it all the time, but just to have it laid out like this, and I realized it had to start with those hives and it had to start with when I was a little kid. And of course my dad, you know, all of these important pieces in that job, it was not difficult, but you know, you're trying to tell your story. And of course, I mean, it wasn't all of it, but I wanted to hit those important topics. And those were all the the big pieces of my story. And, and just writing it out, Jean, was very therapeutic. It, it got me very emotional. There were a couple of things that I didn't share that were on there because I already, you know, was getting emotional. I could feel it coming. And it's not that I, I mind that. Uh, I hope you can understand me when I'm crying, but <laughs> <laughs> once I start, Jean, it's very hard for me to stop. So I kind of pulled away <laughs> from it a little bit, but very therapeutic. I love having it all here because I typed it out in a Google Doc. So I have printed it and I'm just going to tuck it away in my journal to have it. But things come up, you know, we we push things to the back and we push them away because we just think, I don't know, did that make a difference in our in my life? Was that a big impact? And then you think about it for a bit, like, yeah, it was a huge impact in my life and in my drinking. So I loved it. I always recommend people do it as they're prepping for the show, but I, I feel like we all should take the time to do it because even if we spend a lot of time thinking about our story or in therapy or whatever it is we're doing to try and connect the dots in our life, when we sit down to write, another part of our brain engages and it can tap into some things that we hadn't thought about and make sense of things that we hadn't thought about. So it's a great exercise. Lori, how can people find you and learn more about you and find your podcast and all the things? Oh, my website, lauriemassacott.com. Everything is there. And then 250 and beyond the podcast is wherever you listen to podcasts. And Jean's episode is going to be released the first part of April. And I'm excited about that. It's a great episode. So you're going to want to listen to that one (laughs) for sure. Listen to one and flip over to the other, back to back. (laughs) Lori, thank you so much for your time today. And listeners, check the show notes for links to Lori's website and all the things we mentioned. Thank you so much, listeners, for being here, for being supportive of the show. If you want to help other people find us, it's as simple as dropping a rating on your podcast app. uh, And I hope it's a good one. I would really appreciate that. That gets our message out to other people. So that's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Dark corners.
Just want to 